Climate change is and will be one of the most defining challenges of our generation. And as a society, we're now experiencing both subtle and dramatic effects in everyday life. It's a complex topic and a fitting one for our Rebuilding America podcast series. I'm Stephen Horn, CEO of Web's Edge, where we connect issues and audiences, and you're listening to On The Edge. As the American West experiences record wildland fires and drought, and year after year brings record hurricane seasons, climate change is no longer just relegated to academic debates. Americans are experiencing its effects every day. But in order to find a fix, we must first understand the cause. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Kodas, author of 2017's Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. Michael has been covering climate and wildfire in the American West for much of his career. Well, Michael, thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on. So, so let's kick off. A really basic question, if you don't mind, to uh, start with. When you talk about wildfire, what do you mean by wildfire? Well, wildfire would be any natural fire on the landscape um, that you know, burns through vegetation. So it can be a forest, which is what we usually think of it when we see the big wildfires in the Western United States or in Australia, but it can also be a grassland. It can even be tundra and areas like that that are now burning. So yeah, it's basically fire that is ignited by a natural source, which is almost invariably lightning and that burns through vegetation rather than human-made structures and communities. You could say it's nothing new, right? I mean, we must have had wildfires ever since we've had a planet. Absolutely. No, wildfires are effectively a weather phenomenon, and most of the landscapes that wildfires burn through are to some degree dependent on them and have a relationship with fire. And a lot of our forests really need regular wildfire to be healthy. A lot of people have 2020 very much in mind, don't they? Obviously, it, for many reasons in the recent uh, memory, but one of them is for wildfires on the west coast of America, isn't it? So can you talk us through 2020 in terms of both Colorado and uh, California and the sort of size of the fires that, uh, that went on? Well, my book, which only came out three years ago, was called Megafire. And although I titled it that, I take a little bit of exception to the term megafire and how it is defined by the U.S. Forest Service in that book. And a megafire, according to the U.S. Forest Service, is any fire that is larger than 100,000 acres. To give you some perspective on that, last summer in California, we had our first gigafire, which was a single wildfire that was larger than a million acres. Wow. If you want to stretch that back just 20 or 30 years, prior to 1995, the United States, on average, experienced about one megafire a year, according to the U.S. Forest Service. So that's one fire a year that was bigger than 100,000 acres. That average is pushing up towards 10 fires a year of that size in the western United States just in you know these past few decades. 
And last summer was, you know, just a record-breaking summer across the Western United States. So California had its gigafire. It also had its most destructive wildfire season in history. And California has set and broken that record repeatedly over recent decades. It's a very flammable state. But here in Colorado, we also had our three largest wildfires in history. So we saw just record-breaking fires across the West. Oregon also had uh, record-breaking fires. There's also, you know, the measure of the damage that these fires are causing and where they're burning. You know, many of these big fires burn in very remote wilderness areas where big fires have always burned. But particularly in, say, the case of, you know, some of the fires in California, in Oregon, these were very large and destructive fires that were burning near communities, near highways, near cities. And so they also did epic amounts of damage to human development. To somebody like me, when you say there's a a fire of a million acres, that just sounds incredible. I mean, that's just, you know, it's hard to wrap your your brain around that size. Can you tell us a little bit more about the damage that uh, these fires would have uh, caused in uh, 2020 in California? Just because, you know, obviously a fire of this size, very dramatic, but give us some kind of idea of of why it matters so much. Well, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, almost all vegetated landscapes have a relationship with fire. Sometimes it's very frequent fire and uh, that burns a, at, at reasonably low intensity. Sometimes it's very intense fires that only occur every century or two or three. In the case of the fires that we saw last summer, they were incredibly large, but we also saw a lot of fires that were burning out of their historical patterns of how severe they were. And foresters and, and firefighters will refer to a fire mosaic which means that even a very big fire will have areas that burn with incredible intensity and very severely, and other areas that burn at low intensity or don't burn at all and are spread out throughout this mosaic. And that's really what leads to a healthy forest is a mix of fire intensities. And lots of species, plants, animals are dependent on that mosaic. In the case of a lot of these really big and really severe fires, that mosaic has really skewed to where you're seeing huge areas that are burned very severely. In some cases, what you would consider a landscape transforming fire, where when it grows back, it will not grow back as the same kind of forest or the same kind of landscape as it was. These fires that have these really huge areas of very intense burning do all kinds of changes to that landscape. For instance, very often they will change the soils. A lot of fires that burn in what we call chaparral, which is a very oily, flammable vegetation that you see a lot in California, particularly Southern California, but also in Arizona, they will often turn the soils what they call hydrophobic. So basically you've released waxes and oils from this vegetation. It is soaked into the soils and has turned them into something that is largely impermeable by water. That means that when we see rainstorms and snow on these surfaces, it's not going to get absorbed by these soils like it once did. It will actually run off and cause all kinds of mudslides, debris flows. So when these soils 
get damaged by fires like this. And when they become hydrophobic or they get changed, those soils are not going to react to other weather phenomenon the same way that they did in the past. So you have thunderstorm on that soil, you're likely looking at a really bad mudslide or even right. a debris flow, which can carry boulders that weigh many tons, cars, entire houses away from the incredible water and debris that comes off of that fire scar. Um, this happened in Colorado many years ago after a, a very tragic fire outside Glenwood Springs on Storm King Mountain, where on Christmas Eve, after the fire, so six months later, there was heavy precipitation, there was a massive debris flow. That debris flow crossed I-70, the interstate highway, washed some 30 cars into the Colorado River. So these fires create all kinds of new hazards with mudslides, with debris flows, with the kind of vegetation that might grow up after these fires that is different than what was there historically. They also can put all kinds of smoke in the air that create hazardous breathing conditions for people around these fires. And we saw really terrible air quality throughout the West last summer because of the fires. So there's all kinds of trickle-down impacts from the severity and the size of these fires. And how much of this do you think can be put down to uh, changes in the climate? Well, wildfire is one of the areas of climate change where the changes are quite dramatic and very obvious. It's kind of hard to argue that uh, we're not seeing climate change when we see the changes that we've seen with wildfire. Yeah, though some famously have denied exactly that, that fact. They have. They have. But even, you know, at the most basic level, looking at the science behind this and the weather conditions, you can explain some of this with climate. For instance, here in the Rocky Mountains where I live, when we look at a snow-capped peak, you're looking at a little trickle reservoir that keeps the forest below it moist and keeps it from burning. When we get less snow and have weak snow years like we've had when that snow comes later in the year and particularly when it burns off much earlier in the year when it melts off, then those forests are available to burn much earlier and later in the year, which allows fires to start earlier, get bigger, and uh, the fuels to be far drier and available for the kind of big fires that we saw last year. And we are consistently seeing our snowpack melt off much earlier than it did in years past and seeing snow arrive later in the season. That's led to, you know, somewhere around 80 to 90 days of expansion of the fire season in the western United States, this decline of snowpack that kept our forests moist. The uh, climate also allows plants that are very flammable to grow in areas where they didn't used to be able to grow, so they can grow higher on these peaks than they used to. They spread into areas that the snow or other weather phenomenon used to hold them back from. So there's a lot of ways that climate drives this. But climate is only one of the drivers of our fire crisis. There are other things like the way we've managed our forests and put out too many fires for a century. So we've allowed some of our forests to become incredibly overgrown. And uh, we've also developed heavily into these forests. And that has a huge impact on the fires that we're seeing. 
So, so what are some of the things that we can do? What are some of the things that we can do to mitigate uh, against this? Well, it starts at a granular level, which is if you live in uh, what we call the wildland urban interface, which is basically an area where you live in housing or in a community that abuts a flammable landscape, then building with materials that are less combustible, you know, so, you know, you build with a metal roof and you have um, venting on your house that will keep embers from getting into your attic and things like that. It's also a manage of regular maintenance of your property. So you are you know, raking up the needles that could carry an ember or a flame from an ember to your house, things like that, and trimming limbs from trees, you know, making your property less flammable. But it also has to expand out of these individual actions into community actions. If you do all of that work on your property and your neighbor does nothing, your neighbor's house is going to catch on fire and burn your house down. So you need a whole group of people to agree with that and to function as a community to make all of their properties more safe with wildfire. And we're seeing more and more of that. Other things that are happening, you know, for instance, in California, they are really reconsidering how we insure properties. The state has been kind of the insurer of last resort. So if you wanted to build in a really dangerous landscape and other insurers said, no, we won't insure you if you build your house there, then the state would step in with a special program and they're starting to reconsider the properties that they're willing to insure to try to slow development into these very flammable, very dangerous landscapes. So, you know, there are policies that we can put in place to try to to slow that. But we also have to recognize that, you know, by some measures, a third of U.S. homes are in that wildland urban interface. And most of those people in those homes don't recognize that they live with the hazard of wildfire. Um, If you look at what happened in Colorado Springs here in 2012 or in Santa Rosa, California in 2017 and any number of communities last summer, you saw fires that started in the forest, but then embers and flying debris from these fires landed in a city, ignited the homes in this city, and suddenly you had an urban firestorm moving from house to house and destroying hundreds of homes. Most of the people in those homes never dreamed that they could lose their home to a forest fire like that. So a lot of it is also an awareness that we have a relationship with flammable landscapes and with these fires, and that we need to be prepared for them even when we're living in a suburb or inside a city. Final question, and not the easiest to get our heads around, but uh, but I'll give it a go. So people in living in your part of America are, uh, you know, it's a very uh, influential, very wealthy part of the world. And yet, to some extent, we're all interdependent here. The, the climate change affects us all. So when we're talking about the issue of climate and uh, climate change and uh, wildfires, what do people in California and and Colorado, what do you need to do to influence the wider debate on climate change, which ultimately is going to be the only way of dealing with this issue, one might say? Quite a fraught question, as (laughs) you point out. One thing to recognize is that these fires are not just being driven to some degree by climate change, they're also a driver of climate change. Right. 
For instance, the wildfires in Australia, which sadly much of the world has already forgotten because you know we had such bad fires in the United States more recently. Recent research showed that those fires in Australia warmed the stratosphere of the entire Earth by up to two degrees Celsius for six months. Wow. Um, uh, these fires release huge amounts of carbon dioxide and methane and other gases that have their own impacts on the climate. So it's a vicious circle. And it's really important that we you know, recognize that and consider that when we're thinking in terms of climate. When we're thinking in terms of the Western United States and we get back down to that granular individual level, so many of the people who live in the West moved here because they see themselves as rugged individualists. You know, they make their own decisions. You know, we are politically independent. You know, we, you know, we don't let government tell us what to do. And we're not necessarily great at making big community efforts to deal with hazards. <laughs> yeah. By the same token, a lot of the people who live here have only moved here in the last generation. Yeah, we've seen this huge population increase in this very flammable landscape of people with these attitudes. And a lot of these people will tell you, well, I moved here for the trees. I moved here for the nature without recognizing that they moved into a landscape where we had been extinguishing wildfires for a century. So these trees that you moved here for, sometimes there's 10, 20, 30, 40 times more of those in the forest you're living in that would be there naturally. It's not really a natural landscape that these people are moving into, even though they believe that they are. And so they're very resistant towards the type of thinning operations, prescribed burns to reintroduce low intensity fire that we need, because they think that it's messing up the nature that they moved here for without recognizing that, boy, this isn't the way things look naturally before you know, we settled this area. So one thing is that we really have to um, have an understanding of the landscapes that we live in, what they were like historically, what fire was like historically there, because we're never going to defeat fire the way we have tried to in the last century, where we treat fire as this kind of wild animal, this enemy in the forest that we can eradicate if we just try hard enough. Stopping a wildfire is kind of like stopping a hurricane or stopping a tornado. We're not going to change these things. So we need to learn to live with them. And part of learning to live with them is recognizing that fire has been a part of this landscape since long before we were a part of it, that there is a natural process there that is actually beneficial to us and beneficial to that landscape. And we are going to have to learn to live with that landscape and live with the fires that need to be there to make it healthy to not just mitigate those fires' impacts on the things that we care about, the resources that we have at risk, our homes, our watersheds, the species that we love there, but also on the climate as a whole, that you know, we need to have a healthy acceptance of fire that lives in these forests that has been here all along so that we don't set up the conditions that can bring megafires and gigafires that are going to destroy homes, destroy whole watersheds, whole forests, and also have a huge impact on our climate. Well, Michael, thanks ever so much indeed. Thanks indeed for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time today. So thank you. It was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, and let's hope that we don't have quite as bad a year in the West as we did last year. As you heard, Michael says it's all about learning to live with climate change and the need for communities to band together to do just that. 
My next guest is with the Anthropocene Alliance, which has united communities around 23 US states to equip them with the tools to fight for climate and environmental justice. Harriet Festing joins us from North Central Florida with her dog Echo, who, as you will hear, plays a prominent part in our discussion. Harriet, first of all, thanks very much indeed for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, Harriet, can I start start at the beginning? What is the Anthropocene Alliance? Yes, thank you. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, tell you about Anthropocene Alliance. We are the nation's largest coalition of frontline communities fighting for climate and environmental justice. We currently represent around 80 members in 28 US states plus Puerto Rico. And the members we represent are those who are really on the front line of climate change. So their homes are flooding or being burned down. They're often in pretty severe circumstances. And our goal is both to get help to them and resources and funding, but also to help them get organized so that they can both get solutions within their own community and also push for federal solutions, for national solutions. Where did the idea come from? As you can probably hear from my accent, I'm English and had just got a job in Chicago working with communities impacted by flooding. And during that time, uh, there was heavy, heavy rains and many of the residents, the homes in the Chicago area had started to flood. And we had just got front page coverage in the Chicago Tribune about some data analysis we'd been doing. And this woman called Helen Lekovich, the hairstylist, lived in the village, well, town of Midlothian, Illinois, called. And really that phone call kind of changed my life. So she had this business as a hairstylist in her basement and her basement kept flooding. And so she had set up a group, she called it Floodlothian, Middleothian, a group of residents who had just gone, I've had enough, we've got to do something about this. All the homes are flooding and we have to have action now. And so she started organizing her residents and we started working alongside her. And within a couple of years, she had got millions of dollars worth of investment. She had changed the laws that the town was using to regulate uh, development. She had worked with us to introduce state legislation and then federal legislation. She was just so phenomenal. And I just thought if we could find many Helen Lekoviches across the country, what incredible stuff we could do. And, and really, that's what we have been doing. And we have found equally extraordinary leaders across the US, many people like Helen Lekovich. Interestingly enough, 80% of the uh, communities we work with are women. So so Helen Lekovich is very much the model of, of the groups we're working with. Maybe tell us a little bit more about some of those communities, some of those groups, some of those Helens, if you, uh, if, if you will. Give us an idea of more of those communities. Such an interesting story. Well, so in Port Arthur, Texas, Port Arthur was absolutely slammed by Hurricane Harvey. I mean, reports say 80% of the homes were damaged. I think it's about 50% African-American. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure exact data, but it's uh, many residents are African-American and they are way more likely to be lower income and way more likely. All the research shows that African-Americans and people of color a, both more vulnerable to uh, climate change and being less likely to get federal help. 
So we started working with with residents there. Actually, what happened was I reached out. I had an introduction made to an organization called Community in Power and Development, Inc., led by Hilton Kelly, who is quite a well-known environmental activist. Uh, But he'd been mostly working on air contamination. So Port Arthur is also home to one of the largest petrochemical industries in the country. So they are directly impacted. They are almost the hub of global warming and residents are going underwater as a result of this global warming. Hilton Kelly, at the point where I started working with him, had lost, had had to evacuate his home, was living in a FEMA trailer. He has since got back into his home, but last year, for example, had to evacuate twice. So the circumstances of the people we work with are really serious. So what we have done, he's identified various communities that are in Port Arthur who have been completely abandoned by the system. Some of the poorest in the city, whereas, you know, many of the, much of the federal funding is going to the wealthier communities. So we now have experts on on the use of nature to reduce the impacts of flooding, on assisted relocation for those homeowners who want to get out, and on property elevation. And we've also been getting actual funding into Community Empower and Development Inc. so that they can survive and they can recruit community organisers to start to organise residents so that these programmes serve their needs. And then we're also going to help get federal funding into the community. And I could tell you many, many such stories, you know. I suppose the $64,000 question here, Harriet, I guess, is uh, are these catastrophes uh, caused by climate change? So uh, we normally say they're caused by three things. Uh, climate change, just general disinvestment, lack of infrastructure, and then you add development, development that should not be happening where it's happening, that then adds to it. So you just imagine many of the communities, and this is particularly the case for low-income communities of colour, are located in the floodplain, humble homes that possibly shouldn't have been developed there in the first place, but because of redlining, because of property prices, there were a whole load of reasons why those homes were developed. You then have a big new, you know, a master plan by the city. They're going to revitalize this neighborhood. So they do this plan. They build up uh, several foot, bring in trucks of dirt fill and then build new homes, new hotels, you know, their grand master plan. And those floodwaters are then displaced. You know, there's nowhere else for that water to go. Uh, so homes actually that even previously weren't in the floodplain are now in the floodplain and they're flooding. And then often on top of that, you add the fact that the petrochemical industry, mining, superfund sites, hazardous waste sites are more likely to be relocated in these poorer communities. It's a really a horrific story of people being dumped on. What can AA do to help? I would say we broadly, our groups divide into, into two types. Those who are fighting their city and county because they're being dumped on. And so they can't really work in partnership because they're more likely to be in lawsuits. And so we can help them with those lawsuits and we can help them get scientists to further those lawsuits. And then there are those who have often maybe 
uneasy partnerships with their towns and cities uh, and counties, but some kind of partnership. So their, their town and city will support them. We can work with them to actually get federal funding into those communities that need the help most. So that's the kind of what we can do at the local level. But of course, we're a coalition. And so as we start to work together, we can amplify the voices and we can start to shape the policies. So we have worked, for example, we've had many conversations with FEMA. FEMA is very aware and there's been a lot of coverage about how inequitable their programs are, how actually research shows that FEMA programs make wealthy white communities, they actually make them more wealthy. Right. You know, that doesn't mean that some homeowners in those communities suffer terribly, but generally across the community, they get more wealthy, the more disasters they have. The poorer black communities get poorer. And FEMA's kind of aware of that, but they don't really understand maybe the more specifics of the barriers, you know, and how to remove them. So we, we're we having those conversations with federal government about their programs. Also, many of the philanthropic foundations who really want to do the right thing, they just don't know how to work with community leaders. So we can also start to shape the work of the philanthropic foundations so that they're actually helping the community leaders versus what so often happens is that their money goes to a large NGO, environmental nonprofit, to then a middle-sized environmental profit and then to the community leaders who get a you know a two thousand dollar grant stipends right if you're uh, stuck in the court in the middle of this you know there's been a, a flood or, or whatever and uh, and you've lost your home a lot of people feel quite kind of hopeless i guess is that you know what can an individual do so what can an individual or a community do funny enough in some ways it's those circumstances I've almost found that we've been able to be most helpful, maybe because their stories are so powerful and often maybe they have a strong sense of what it is they want. So I'll just give you an example. Terry Straker and Melissa Kruper in South Carolina, their homes flood again and again. They are in terrible situations Melissa has never been able to go back to her home. Terry is always having to evacuate. Both low-income, low-middle, working-class community. And I had the chance to go and see them, so I'd seen them posting on Facebook about their circumstances. They had held various meetings in the community, but hadn't quite known what it was they need, could or should do. And so I actually went down and visited them. They had a big public meeting with over 100 people there. And I kind of said, so you need to decide what it is you're going to be advocating for. And as we talked more and more, it became clear they wanted to get out. They didn't feel safe. And so we matched them with scientists. We matched them with program experts. And then we just started facilitating conversations between the county and the state and the federal government. Money exists. It's just that there's a problem often connecting that money, particularly to lower income communities. And so we, we started advocating with them, making sure that the meetings were happening, that their voices were in those meetings. They were turning up with T-shirts printed saying, I flood, I vote. 
out. They did. They would then hand that brochure saying, we are a group of 60 residents who want our homes bought out. They did protests. We supplied them with a megaphone, the funding for the megaphones, for the signs. So they protested on the streets. We helped them do Twitter storms, tagging in various officials. And then we heard that they did indeed get 13 million to get 60 homes bought out. So I guess it's helping them really understand what it is they want and then helping them both get the scientific and technical data and have the right set of introductions so that they can get that. Funny enough, there often is the money. Uh, there just isn't the connectivity between those in need and, and the programmes that are designed to help them. So I guess I've got two more questions. I suppose listening to you, you talk quite a lot about uh, FEMA and uh, and obviously the federal government. It's likely easier now that the federal government has changed hands, if you like. Kind of yes and no. I mean, the barriers that exist for our members always existed but at least now we can talk openly about climate change. We can actually talk about the issues that are impacting them. So I'd say it gives us a little bit of hope, but the you know the barriers still exist regardless. Maybe there's greater will and desire by government officials to tackle some of those problems because they've been instructed to do so. So, so I guess that my, my last question and uh, is you know the world is not short of science or scientists and uh, and as you say there's often actually is the funding to uh, deal with some of these issues but you do you you talk about two very fundamental issues for our society at the moment one the damage of climate change and the other is the uh, socioeconomic uh, you know unfairness and uh, how poor communities get poorer richer communities get uh, richer are you confident that we as a society can tackle both of those issues <laughs> um, uh, well i maybe i'm confident that we can help <laughs> um <laughs> Until we set up Anthropocene Alliance, there was no way a federal government of scientists themselves actually connecting to the frontline communities that they were seeking to support. You know, so we now have, we're getting up to 100 members. And so at last there is actually a mechanism to start to have those conversations. So, for example, half our members have been matched with pro bono scientists and so at least, yeah, I think we're providing the mechanisms. You know, it's very powerful. Part of the reason we set up our Anthropocene Alliance was I took Helen Lekovich and her neighbours to various meetings with government officials. And you could just see their mouths sort of hang open in horror. And they just said, we have to do something about this. Uh, so right. we have some very, very powerful leaders and I just need to get their voices to the people who care. Well, Harriet, thanks ever so much indeed for talking to us. We really appreciate it. Fascinating stories, all of them. So thank you. Thank you so much. Lovely speaking to you. There are still two episodes to come in this Rebuilding America podcast series and we invite you to tune into the next where we'll focus on leadership and cities of the future. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Horne.